bring the God, word of God to us this morning. So go ahead. Uh, just to be clear, I won't be filling in for <laughs> Alan Carter. Uh, uh, I'm just going to be helping, assisting in the transition. Um, uh, I know Alan was here was it last week or uh, recently with you all. Um, it's been a, a great inspiration to me. Uh, I'm also very delighted to be back. I was here in January and uh, had a chance to meet uh, many of you. I see some faces I don't remember seeing that Sunday, but it was the first Sunday in the new year, so uh, we're not always around. Um, if you would turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'd like to, um, our sermon is going to come from those passage, from this passage this morning. Uh, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll look at the first um, 11 verses. Uh, Paul is speaking here, writing to the church at Corinth. Um, he's progressing nearly toward the very end of his letter, um, and he says to them, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom who are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles. Last of all, as, one, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. I think there's a great question that from time to time, if we're self-reflective people, uh, we ask ourselves. Perhaps if we're not self-reflective people, maybe we have some children that might be around us that will bring the question up to us, why are you doing what you're doing? Why do we do what we do? About two years ago, I was posed this question by a coworker of mine. Uh, about for the last two years, I've been working for uh, Cellular Sales, which is a Verizon company. Actually, sometimes I work at the store uh, down the road here. And in the course of conversation, we were just talking and, you know, making casual small talk. Who are you? My name is John. What are you doing? Where did you come from? You know, I moved down to Alabama to, um, you know, go to Beeson, to go to Samford. Well, why did you do that? And the conversation, well, eventually it comes out that, you know, I, I want to be a pastor, that I want to serve and minister in the church. And, of course, you know, my coworker who, um, who's not a believer asked a really good question, why would you want to do that? Uh, she didn't mean it in any kind of antagonistic way. She just meant it seriously. You know, why would you want to be a pastor? What are the reasons for you desiring to serve in the church? And um, I, I didn't give a good answer. Uh, it, it wasn't the answer that I hope that now looking back that I, I would have given. I told her, you know, I love people. I enjoy being around people. I like helping people. I like serving people. I like seeing people. Uh, improve and grow and become better. And, and that's not a bad answer, but 
anyone could give that answer for nearly any vocation that you would want to pursue. If you want to be a medical professional, you could give that answer. If you wanted to serve uh, in, uh, in law, you could give that answer. If, even if you wanted to be a librarian, you know, a librarian is a people-oriented service as well. Granted, it's people in books, but still, <laughs> it's a people service. Uh, what I, the answer I should have given to my coworker, why do you want to be a minister, uh, is the very simple proclamation that hopefully we make every Sunday, if not verbally, then in our hearts. I want to be a minister uh, because Jesus Christ is risen. I think that if we were to sit with Paul at the latter part of his ministry and interact with him perhaps somewhere in his home or in his study uh, in Rome or, or wherever he was being under house arrest, if we would sit with him and ask, Paul, Paul, why did you um, live the life that you lived? Why did you go from a promising young scholar in, uh, within Judaism to a <laughs> poverty-stricken wanderer who traveled throughout the ancient world proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ? I think he, that's the answer that he would give. I proclaim and I teach because Jesus Christ is risen. And so for us, with where we are today, it's important for us, I think, uh, weekly, daily, as frequently as we can, to get back in touch with this question, why do we do what we do? And especially as we progress about halfway through the year, um, you know, we're uh, coming up on July here, or the end of June, um, and so we're about halfway through the year. Why do we, do, as Christians, do the things that we do? Why do we gather every Sunday uh, to meet with one another? Why do we pray for one another? Why do we serve one another? Why do we dig into the scriptures and try to discover what they mean? We do what we do because Jesus Christ is risen. And so Paul, with this truth in the back of his mind, that he is doing what he is doing, he is preaching because of the resurrection, um, he ministers in the church of Corinth. Now, one of the intriguing things, though he had planted the church of Corinth, and though they had um, interacted back and forth with one another various times through letters and other things. Paul was not at the time of this occasion particularly present with them, but he had heard uh, some reports from them on how they had been growing and developing and progressing in their walk with the Lord. And unfortunately, the reports that he was getting from the church in Corinth uh, were not promising reports. If we were to have walked into the first, and I assume it was a Presbyterian church, right? First Presbyterian Church of Corinth. So if we would have walked into the First Presbyterian Church in Corinth on a random Sunday morning, uh, likely the church wasn't much bigger than um, our church family is this morning. Uh, Paul's churches weren't mega churches of thousands of people. They were smaller assemblies, probably numbering somewhere in the teens to the low 20s. Um, and uh, if we would have walked into the church we would have very quickly been very aware of a lot of unhealthiness in the church. Uh, there was false teaching on the resurrection. There was division in factions over who was following which leader. One was claiming that they, one group was claiming that we follow Apollos, another was saying that we follow Peter, others were saying that we follow Paul. And Paul, uh, very brilliantly in the beginning of Corinthians, says, Hey, why don't you follow Jesus? Follow Jesus Christ. Don't get so divided over your leaders. Uh, put Christ at the forefront of your minds. Uh, not only were they factitious in that way, they had some very, they had a strange circumstance of a brother who was in their assembly uh, who was um, sleeping with his uh, uh, father's wife. 
uh, and they weren't doing anything about it. So a man who was living in very open sin that seems to be aware, everyone seems to be aware of this sin, uh, they are just, oh, you know, we're going to just let bygones be bygones and not address the issue. Uh, another issue that was going on in the church of Corinth, not only were they divided over their leaders, not only were they ignoring some blatant sin in front of them, but it seems like they were using the sense of spiritual gifts that the Lord had given them as uh, situations of boasting to elevate certain people in the church, and as a result of it, uh, to push aside other individuals in the congregation. So, oh, I have the gift of prophecy, therefore I am more important than you. I have the gift of tongues, therefore I am more important than you. And rather than be people who are given gifts for the uh, building up and edification of the church, they were using those gifts to promote themselves and to elevate themselves in the congregation. I'm so glad we don't have problems like that in the church today. <laughs> um, so the circumstances in Corinth uh, were, um, it wasn't a healthy, it wasn't a healthy church by, by any means. And Paul had received reports about the comings and goings, about the circumstances uh, from several different people. Uh, there was a um, young woman named Chloe who seems to have been a traveler uh, who gives a report to Paul on what has been going on and she speaks of some of the, uh, it seems like she was the one that was providing information on the divisions and on the disunity. Um, there was a letter that the Corinthian church wrote to Paul and we know this because he mentions it in the book and uh, several parts of the book are structured around Paul addressing these issues, saying now concerning this, now concerning this, now concerning this. And it seems like Paul is just walking through one point after another questions that the church at Corinth had for him. And so another re report, another source that he had for his response to them came from this letter that they um, had addressed to him. And then in uh, chapter 16, Paul also mentioned several messengers. Uh, he provides their names. Um, I'm, I, they were Fortunatus, uh, Achaicus, and Stephanus, three men who were also travelers from Corinth to Paul, who provided a report of what was going on in the church as well. Well, when we look at our passage this morning, there are several things that Paul wants to remind them in, their, um, in holding steadfast to the faith of not turning aside in their directions, of not growing weary in their walk with the Lord. And these are the things that I would like to draw our attention to this morning. Um, the first thing that he reminds them of is the priority of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The second thing that he reminds the Corinthian church of is the progress of the resurrection, how the understanding of the resurrection came to be delivered to them through him and through the apostles, um, or from Christ to the apostles, to Paul himself and finally to them. So he wants to remind them of the progress of the resurrection. And lastly, Paul wants to remind them of the power of the resurrection, that the resurrection for him was a historical reality that when Paul came face to face with the risen Lord, it transformed his life. He went from a a Jewish rabbi, a young growing scholar in Judaism, to totally making a 180 in his life. And rather than pursue an advancement in the hierarchy of um, Jewish religious leaders, Paul chose to be a humble missionary evangelist 
church planner, traveling around the Mediterranean, that all may know and understand and experience the power of the visible and risen Christ. And so these are the three things that I would like to draw our attention to today. The priority of the resurrection, the progress of the resurrection, and the power of the resurrection. Um, I'm going to uh, start by talking about the progress of the resurrection, uh, then I'll move to the power of the resurrection, and then I'll conclude with talking about the priority of the resurrection uh, for us and for, in our, for our lives. Well, Paul begins in uh, chapter uh, 15, verse 3, saying and reminding the Corinthian church that I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, some of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. In other words, they've, they've died. Then he appeared to James and to the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. This is the progress of the, of the message of the gospel, that it began with the historical reality of the resurrection, um, that Christ did so in accordance with the scriptures, that Christ later appeared to the apostles, and eventually that he moved and appeared to Paul as well. Um, this passage is one that is um, particularly difficult for people that would be critical or skeptical of the historicity of the resurrection. And it's difficult um, for a host of reasons. Firstly, um, when we look at the New Testament, um, even the most uh, liberal and progressive of Christian scholars, or of, of scholars, I, I use the, probably use the term Christian loosely, but the most progressive of scholars would look at the book of 1 Corinthians and they don't doubt that it was actually written by the Apostle Paul. So there's no question that Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, there's no question about the book of 2 Corinthians, about Romans, about Galatians. There are certain books in the New Testament that no one uh, fundamentally questions whether or not Paul wrote them. And 1 Corinthians is one of them. Now, the problem with um, this particular passage is that Paul is telling them that I am proclaiming to you what I first received. Um, and we know from the book of Acts that at the very earliest, Paul was visiting the church at Corinth somewhere around 52 AD. So somewhere about 20, 23 years or so after the resurrection actually happened. We know so because in the book of Acts, um, when it speaks of Paul's ministry in Corinth, it mentions that a man named Gallio was the proconsul of Achaia. Now, through, archae through archaeology, uh, we've discovered that Gallio was actually um, the proconsul of Achaia, which is the district in which Corinth was located, from the years 52 AD to 57 AD. And so in terms of dating all of Paul's ministry, this is the standard that scholars use to determine where was Paul in certain moments in his life by using the outline of the book of Acts to piece together roughly where is Paul, you know, give or take a few years at certain times. So we know that Paul was proclaiming and teaching the resurrection of Christ um, in Corinth around 52 AD, which is again roughly 20 some years after the events of the resurrection. Now part of the issue is when we combine that with Paul's testimony in the book of Galatians about his conversion, we know that from 
when he's writing Galatians and when he begins his ministry, that there's a period of about 17 years prior to that that he um, actually experienced his conversion experience. What this means is that Paul's own witness and testimony uh, goes back to just a few years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when you put together the um, authenticity of the book of 1 Corinthians, it puts progressive scholars in a position recognizing that here we actually have someone teaching that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead within years of the actual resurrection. And it's a problem because the assumption among um, more progressive scholarship is that the resurrection was a myth, it was a made-up story by troubled disciples who couldn't really grasp and fathom and, and come to grips with the fact that their teacher and Lord had risen from the dead. For Paul, though, being such an early advocate, it takes time for mythic stories to develop. And when you're teaching something in such a small community like Jerusalem, within a few years of the events of happening, uh, witnesses would have abounded throughout the city of Jerusalem and throughout the Middle East that would have known of Jesus's ministry. They would have known who he was and what he was doing, and they would very easily be able to discount um, Paul's testimony on the resurrection. Um, so that Paul is teaching this so early and so soon uh, provides us with confidence that what actually Paul is teaching is, is very true, that Christ was actually raised from the dead. Surprising. Can we, can we believe this, that actually the scriptures are true, that Jesus Christ did raise from the dead in accordance with the word of God? And so it's a, it's a difficult passage um, for the most progressive of scholars. Um, but for Paul, Paul wasn't convinced or wasn't really concerned in his day about um, you know, addressing the concerns of 21st century liberal scholarship. He was concerned with pastorally reminding his congregation that Jesus Christ had, in fact, risen from the dead. And so what is he doing here? He's citing his sources. He's telling them, people of Corinth, if you want to investigate what I have come to know to be true, that Christ is risen from the dead in accordance with scriptures, here are individuals that you can go to and you can seek out and you can search for yourself. Did Christ raise from the dead? Uh, yes, he did raise from the dead. How do we know this? He appeared to Cephas. Go talk to Peter. Uh, Peter is traveling around proclaiming the gospel and proclaiming the good news of Christ as well. Talk to Peter when he comes to you. He will also validate what I tell you is true. If you want to talk to him, if you want to do further study, go and talk to the 12. Go and talk to the disciples. Get up. Travel was safe in the time. Go head down to Jerusalem or go wherever it is that the apostles are located and seek out for yourself. Did Christ raise from the dead? Uh, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Paul probably doesn't know all of those brothers individually by name, but if they would have done the study of heading back down to Jerusalem and of interacting where Jesus had actually walked, they would meet men and women who had seen Christ both before his resurrection and after his resurrection. And then lastly, uh, he says that he appeared to James, another one of the key figures in the early church. If you want to grow in your certainty and understanding of the resurrection, go and talk to James. And lastly, lastly, uh, come to me, come to me, Paul. 
I have seen and I have witnessed the uh, resurrection of Christ, not because I was there at the empty tomb, but because for Paul, and we know this from other places in Scripture, that he came to know the risen Christ when he was traveling um, on uh, the road to Damascus as a younger man. So come and talk to me, and I will lead you into further certainty regarding the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So for Paul, the fact that the resurrection was a real historical event was of utter importance and of utter centrality in his faith and in his life. When we say Christ is risen, it's not a uh, ascent to some spiritual thing that we, yes, Christ is risen, but not physically. No, 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 no. Uh, the tomb is empty. The grave is empty. Our Lord is not with us because he has ascended into heaven, not because he is resting somewhere in a tomb. So hold fast in your faith. We serve a risen Lord. Well, not only did Paul want to remind them then of the progress of the gospel, how it went out from one person to another, and to use that progress as an opportunity for them to grow in their certainty of the resurrection, but he also wanted them to know the power of the resurrection. Paul says in verses 8 to 11, um, last of all, he appeared also to me, and then verses 9, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and by his grace, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God with me. With me. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying that, why do I come before you and preach? Because I have been one who has been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We remember Paul's own life and Paul's own testimony of being one who had gone from a persecutor of the Christian faith to a preacher of the Christian faith. Uh, we know that here in the state of Alabama, there are certain strong, um, I would say, religious affinities for certain athletic teams. And you know the names of the teams that I am speaking of. Uh, what would convince a Auburn fan to renounce his love for Auburn and proclaim his love for Alabama? Or what would make an Alabama fan renounce all the championships <laughs> and proclaim his or her love for Auburn? Uh, what would we say? Uh, I would say it would take a miracle, uh, personally. An absolute astounding miracle where the God of the Auburnites would appear to a lowly Alabamian and declare himself as true. Or perhaps the God of Alabamians would appear to the people of the tribe of Auburn and reveal the power of Alabama football shown in the face of Nick Saban and Bear Bryant. <laughs> um, that's, that's, what it, that's what it would take to transform someone from one form of allegiance to another form of allegiance. And it's the same thing with Paul. Um, I think our own religious <laughs> athletic affinities <laughs> uh, for sports provide a slight indication of the level of seriousness and devoutness with which Paul took toward his own uh, zeal with regard to his Judaism. Paul was a man who, uh, looking at Judaism uh, and seeing Christianity grow up, saw it as a very dangerous sect that was threatening 
the truth of his faith. And as a result of that, um, he became one who his position and job was to root out Judaism or was to root out Christianity wherever he saw it and snuff this uh, little fledgling religious splinter group from Judaism because it was threatening the whole of his faith. And what was it that caused him to shift his allegiances? Jesus Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus. It transformed his life. And he went from a man who was firm and grounded in zeal for Judaism to a man who now was a uh, wholehearted devotee of Jesus Christ. It changed his life. And if we're really honest with ourselves, not only did it change his life, it changed the shape of the church. And with the change of the, sh of the shape of the church, it also has been passed down and now changes us as well. Because we have the letters that Paul wrote to the fledgling churches who were wrestling with their struggles and with their frustrations. Were it not for that Damascus Road experience, about uh, two-thirds, three-quarters, a good chunk of our New Testament wouldn't be in existence. And so we're grateful. We're grateful for Paul and for the ministry that he had. But Paul wanted his congregation to know the power of the resurrection, which he had personally witnessed and experienced and known. How does one proclaim, how does one pass on that sense of knowing and understanding the power of the resurrection in the way that Paul did? That's a question that I wrestle with as a pastor and as uh, a developing minister. How do I communicate the power of the gospel to those who I experience and those who I interact with? And I hope this is a question that you ask as well as you go about your day-to-day -day life, wherever it is that you are, in your job, in your school, and wherever it is that you are walking. How do we communicate the power of the resurrection to those who we interact with? Um, I think that we can take some heed here from what Paul is saying. Uh, two examples that he gives. Uh, first of all, he calls himself the least of the apostles. Um, <laughs> in the, the, the Greek here, it's kind of funny. Uh, if we were, we would actually have to use uh, really bad, really poor English to translate this. Paul would say that I am the leasterest of the apostles. I'm the very lowest of the low. I'm the bottom of the barrel. Um, that's, that's what I am as an apostle. And so what was one thing that Paul did to proclaim the power of the resurrection in his life? He proclaimed the resurrection in humility, in utter humility. Everywhere that he went, he was a man who walked humbly before the Lord. Um, so I think that's one thing that we can think about in terms of how we go about interacting, where we inter interact, to walk carefully and to always walk humbly, not arrogantly, not uh, full of pride and boasting, not using whatever gifts the Lord has given us and the circumstances that the Lord has given us to be opportunities to puff ourselves up, but to, in the places where we are, to humbly walk before those who we interact with, uh, to do so in humility and not to be boasting around those who we are interacting with. Uh, not only is Paul uh, humble in what he is doing, he certainly is humble, um, but also he's a very hard worker. Uh, he says that I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. 
think that uh, one of the sad things that's being lost in our country today is we've lost the good old Puritan Protestant work ethic. I think it could always use a little bit of recovering in our world. Um, I think people that work hard and work humbly are to be greatly admired among our coworkers and among our families. And so being people who are not taken to um, laziness, but people who are taken to work hard and work deliberately for those who we are working for, whether it's for your um, bosses at work, whether it's uh, perhaps working hard and diligently for your spouse uh, around the house who is perhaps giving you the summer honeydew list that needs to be worked on over the uh, course of the next upcoming weeks, or perhaps uh, it is working hard for your parents in the chores and the jobs that they have given you to do around the house. Now, we work hard and we labor not so that people will look at us and say, oh, look at that John, look at that John Her, what a humble guy, what a great hard worker. I like, I could use, I could use 150 humble and hardworking guys like John Her on my staff. Now, you know, maybe that could be true, um, but we work hard and we work humbly, not for our own glory and for our own edification, but so that people will look at us and see Christ in us. So we work not for our own glory, but we work for the glory of Jesus Christ. And so I hope that as you look at trying to seek, how do I proclaim the power of the resurrection in the places where God has put me to work, that you will do so uh, with hard work, but you will do so uh, with utter humility with those who you interact with. Lastly, not only does Paul want to remind them of the progress of the gospel, how it's worked through to the people uh, in the church of Corinth, not only does he want them to be reminded of the power of the resurrection, but also he wants to remind them of the priority of the resurrection. And this is how Paul begins this portion of the chapter there in verses 1 and 2. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul wants to remind them of the gospel that he preached to them, uh, which they received and in which they stand. Um, when we think about the act of standing in something, um, it's uh, when we stand, we want to make sure that we're standing on something uh, that is a sure foundation. You don't want to be uh, getting up and uh, if you are needing to get up and proclaim something, when someone would typically speak in the ancient world, they would do so on a block that we that was called a podium. They would get up and stand on the podium and then declare whatever it was that needed to be said. And so when Paul is making this statement about, um, I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, it seems like perhaps some of that imagery is in the back of his mind that when they stand up before all of those who they interact with, when they give the testimony of the gospel through their lives, that they are doing so on the basis of the podium that they are standing on, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, when you stand on a podium, you want to make sure that that podium is a sure, <laughs> a sure foundation. Um, I remember when I was a, a little boy, I was working and helping out around the house with my grandmother. We were in the garage uh, doing some things, and uh, my grandmother was a humble lady. Uh, she was also a hard worker, um, but sometimes in her zeal for her hard work, 
she would um, not take the most, uh, the strongest safety precautions to whatever it was that she was doing. And so I had turned my back um, because, you know, I mean, grandma was standing on the floor. She was fine. Everything was okay. And I was cleaning out some things in a, um, in a cubby. And as I turned around, I looked, and in just a few seconds, my grandmother had gone from being on the floor of the garage to now being on a, standing on a folding chair and reaching over uh, to another shelf trying to find something. Now, my grandmother was probably in her early 80s at the time, and I, I, I was just shocked, and I was like, Grandma! And she, 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 you know, she, she froze. What are, do you think that's a good, a good uh, thing to stand on? And, and she paused, and no, probably not. And so she got off the chair, and I actually went and got up and helped her get what she was reaching for. Um, the, the priority of the resurrection, the power of the resurrection, when we're standing on the gospel of Jesus Christ and in the truthfulness of the resurrection, we're not standing on a crotchety um, folding chair. We're not reaching out on a foundation that's going to fall from under us and leave us laying flat on our face. Uh, but we are standing on the truth of the gospel. And so um, why the priority of the resurrection for Paul? Well, I, I think as I've said multiple times before, the gospel transformed Paul's life. Um, if, uh, if God has appeared to you and asked you and called you by name, saying, Paul, Paul, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Um, if God had appeared to you in life, why would anything else that you ever do or imagine, how could it ever compare to that? That I have visibly seen the risen Lord. Um, nothing else matters anymore. Uh, God has commissioned me through his Holy Spirit uh, through the assurance of others in, around me that my life is no longer my own, but my life is a life that is to be dedicated in service to Jesus Christ. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ is more important than anything else that I have to proclaim, more important than for Paul, his uh, love for Judaism, more important than for Paul, uh, perhaps his own entrepreneurial business as a tent maker. Uh, the tent making job that he was doing uh, was a supplemental source for him, an opportunity for him to proclaim the gospel wherever he went. And even in his moments of great distress, uh, when he was bound in chains, I kind of feel bad for the soldiers that had to stand next to Paul when he was chained to them. Because here you have a man who had seen the risen Lord and who was taking any opportunity before him, wherever he encountered, whoever he encountered, to proclaim the risen Lord. And so I'm sure after a few moments of being chained, of thinking that this prisoner, or that this prisoner is chained to you, you realize that in the course of Paul's preaching, no, 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 the shoe's on the other foot. Uh, Paul is not chained to you. You're actually chained to Paul and to be one who is receiving the message that he is proclaiming. That was proclaimed from the risen Christ, now down to you. Well, I began our sermon this morning by asking the question, why is it that we do what we do? Why do we gather? Why do we worship? Why do we live the lives that we live as Christians and believers? Uh, we live the lives that we live. We do the things that we do because we have been all touched by the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. At least I hope you have been touched by the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I hope that you've been touched through the preaching of God's word. I hope you've been touched through your own prayers and interactions with our Lord.
I hope that you've been touched through the reading of scripture and through fellowship and through communion with brothers and sisters in Christ. And um, so what's left for us to do as a church family? Well, I think uh, several things I can recommend. Uh, Firstly, I think we can continue to uh, uh, savor our Savior, (laughs) uh, to look at him, uh, to witness him, to enjoy him. And how can we enjoy him? We can enjoy him in some of the ways that I have mentioned previously, uh, by fellowshipping with one another, by gathering regularly to devote ourselves to times of prayer, times of worship, uh, to devote ourselves to studying the scriptures uh, with brothers and sisters in Christ, and also um, individually on our own in our own time. I think also we can savor our Savior um, by living the kind of lives that he has called us to live, by loving one another, um, by giving of ourselves to one another, by actively going to one another when we know that one or one, in, one another are hurting and are struggling, to pray for them, to encourage them, to uplift them. Uh, perhaps even taking a simple meal is always a benefit and a blessing. Um, last thing uh, that we can do is that we can look at the works that we do as not good works that we do to prove ourselves to those whom we interact with, Uh, but we can look at our good works as opportunities to show people the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. I think the uh, token of a good preacher and of a good speaker or one that you uh, hear someone speak and preach, you look at them and not see, oh, this is a person that is very verbose and very uh, wordy and has a lot of really great, wonderful truths and turns of phrases and eloquent speaking. Uh, But the kind of person that I think is a good speaker and a good proclaimer of God's word is when you hear the message that is given, that you say, don't we serve a wonderful Christ? Don't we serve a wonderful Lord? Um, I hope, friends, that in your own workings and in your own interactions uh, throughout the Pell City area, that when people look at you as someone who is proclaiming the gospel, and you may not think of yourself as a preacher or of a pastor or in, in those kind of categories, But all of us, if we have been touched by the love of God, we have a responsibility and we have the joy of being able to declare the gospel where we are, that you will be the people that when others look at you, they will see, wow, that's, that's, I don't know who they serve, but I want to know him more and more. So brothers and sisters in Christ, I hope that when people look at you, the testimony that is given to your coworkers will be one that points people to our risen Lord. Let's pray.